Amen. Well, today I'm going to talk to you about a monument. And in my eyes, it's the greatest monument that's ever been built. We know monuments. We're very familiar with monuments. If we go down practically any highway, a lot of the back streets that we go to, we see signs, historical signs that say, this is a memorial to, or maybe it points to a monument. But we also have monuments that uh, point to events that took place somewhere else. For instance, the World War I and World War II monuments are here. Those events took place overseas, distant lands. The monument is not here for us to remember a distant land, so to speak, but it's a memorial to the people who served during those times and the people who died and the sacrifices that we made. That's why those monuments stand today. Monument is primarily in a place so where it's noted. It's noticeable. So that when people go by, they ask two questions. One, what is that? And why is it here? And the second thing that it does is to answer the first question. So monuments are there for a reason, a purpose. Let's put up uh, pick number one for me, please. But there's a monument. It doesn't look very significant. You can say it's a pile of rocks, and you would be right. But it's not its significance that makes it important. It's why it's there. But to understand this pile of rocks, you need to understand why it's there, how it got there. Now, today's message is going to be on Gilgal. Now, Gilgal is not a city. It's not a town. It's a monument. It's a pile of rocks. The most significant memorial on earth is Apollo Rocks. Let me explain. Today, as we uh, begin our investigation into Gilgal, to search out the history, we need to investigate three primary areas. One, circumcision. Two, the wanderings. And three, restoration. To begin with, Everything, it seems like, starts with Abraham. And like Abraham, memorials are built because somewhere along the line, someone had to go. When men and women go to war, sometimes later, a memorial is built. You have to go. And so it was with Abram. God spoke to Abram and said, go. Do you trust me? Go. Do you believe that I'm going to show you a land? Go. 
just a simple word, go. And show us uh, verse number one. From Genesis 13, uh, yeah, Genesis chapter 13, voice, verses 14 through 17, it says, And the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had departed from him, he says, Look around where you are to the north, south, east, and west. All the land that you see, I'm going to give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. But now go walk the length and the breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. Interesting. This is the word of God coming to Abram. Now, if the word of God were to come to me in that fashion, it says, look, everywhere you see, it's yours. Who else better to, to, to receive a promise from than Hashem, Hashem himself? Hashem, it's yours. Everything you see is yours. I'm giving it to you and your descendants. Scriptures number two, please. And Genesis chapter 15, Abram says, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, he says, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeons. And Abram brought all these things to him. He cut in half, ranged the halves opposite of each other, except for the birds he did not cut. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that 400 years your descendants that will be a stranger in a country that is not their own, they will be enslaved, they will be mistreated. I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterwards I will bring them out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace, and be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generations, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun gone down, darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. So now Hashem takes it to another level. It's not only just his word, now it becomes a covenant promise. The sacrifice, the bloodshed, the consumption of these animals uh, became an absolute, unbreakable covenant between God and Abraham. But then we go to the next stage of this promise that we find in Genesis 17. It says, the whole land of Canaan, where you... 
where you now reside, this is Abraham, Abraham living, <clears throat> excuse me, living in the land of Canaan. He's living there, and the Lord comes to him. He says, the whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, as a stranger, I'm giving as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you and for generations to come. And this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep, every male shall be circumcised. You, unto, you are to undergo circumcision. And it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you for the generations to come. Every male among you who's eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money uh, as a foreigner uh, and those that are not of your offspring, whether born in your household or bought for money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is for an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off. So God made his promise, covenant promise by word and by sign. The sign of the covenant as an everlasting covenant is the flesh. When you see that sign, it's a sign of my covenant. You will obey it. You will keep it. The next stage, and I should also add one other note, that in the covenant promise, with Abraham, with Abram, I should say, at that time, there was a prophecy. The part of the prophecy was that your people would be in a land, they will be enslaved for 400 years. That was the prophecy. So now we're at the prophecy. We're skipping to Exodus chapter 13 real quick. And it says, and the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male, the firstborn offspring of your people. Commemorate this day, the day that you will come out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord bought you out of it with a mighty hand. <clears throat> Eat nothing containing yeast. Today is the month of Aviv. You are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and to the land that he swore your ancestors to give you, the land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe and keep the ceremony in this month forever. So Passover in and of itself, it's a memorial. It's another sign. It's a memorial to what? To God's prophecy, promise, and provision. The Lord said he was going to do it. He said he was going to do it at a certain time. And he does it concisely, precisely, on time, 
for his people. Remember this, it is a memorial. And when the people come out, the Lord leads them out by his might and by a pillar of fire. In Exodus 13, 21, it says, and the Lord Hashem went ahead of them in a pillar of a cloud to to guide them on the way by the night as a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. So cloud by day, pillar of fire by night so that they could travel day or night. When leaving in Exodus 14, Moses says the following to his people. This is very important. Moses stands before all the people and he says to the people, he says, do not be afraid. Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance of the Lord today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord is fighting for you. You need only be still. Only be still. The Lord is the Lord of his army. He is fighting your battles. He is the one that prophesied of what's going to happen to you. He's already promised to bring you into the promised land. There's no way that you could have ever gotten out of Egypt without the mighty hand of God. Just stand back in awe of God's mighty provision. Let the Lord get you there. Just watch. Don't worry. There's nothing to worry about. God is in control. Just watch. The next stage, verse, verse number three, we find ourselves at Mount Sinai. On the way to Mount Sinai, we know that God provided. What did he provide? He provided manna. It was a new thing. It never happened before. He, he fed them along the way. The Lord provided water. He provided water from a rock. He provided water in many different ways, impossible ways. But the Lord provides what his, for his purposes. And it was his purpose to get his people from the land of Egypt to the promised land by the way of Mount Sinai. Now we're at Mount Sinai. If I can head verse number three up, please. Exodus 19 verses four through six say this. You yourselves have seen what I did to, the, to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, out of all nations, I'm going to say that one more time, out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Hashem said to Moses, and these are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So 
So the people take these words. These people met God. The only time in history and times past or in, it, it's up to this very day. This is the only time in history to where an entire nation met God. Face to face. At Mount Sinai. Only time that they've heard his voice, seen his presence, and heard his trumpet. Hmm. We fast forward now from Mount Sinai. We're now standing at the promised land for the first time. Uh, we're standing there and Moses selects the 12 um, spies that will go in, if you will, and spy out the land. And just before they go in, we read in Numbers 13, So the Lord commanded Moses, send them out from the desert of Paran. All those who were leaders of Israel. And in verse 8 it says, And from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, son of Nun, these are the names of the men that Moses sent out to explore the land. But then mysteriously, out of nowhere, no explanation whatsoever from God, from Moses, or anybody, all of a sudden it says, and Moses gave Hoshea, the son of Nun, the name Joshua. What's that all about? Weren't there 11 other people that were spying out the land? Why didn't he change the names of all of them? He did not. He changed one man's name. Your name is Hoshea. We will change it to Joshua. Hoshea means salvation. Joshua means God is salvation. You need to let that soak in for just a minute. Can you imagine a person walking around and says, hey, my name is salvation. When you see me, you see salvation coming. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Just call me salvation. And I think Moses said, no, 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 Joshua, we don't want no misconceptions here. Let's make it plain. God is salvation, not you. So when they look at you with your name changed, they're looking at you and your name says now, God is salvation. God is salvation. It's not me. It's God. So now let's look forward. We get into the rebellion part of the message. This was the portion last week from Numbers 13. The spies come back. And Moses, and they gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you send us, sent us, and it does. It really does flow with milk and honey. We've seen it. It's there. But, I hate buts. But, the people that live there are powerful. Have you seen them? They're giants in the land. I look like a grasshopper. They're huge. And they're giants over here. They're walled cities over there. 
they got a navy. <laughs> and have you seen the towers? Oh my goodness. We don't even have a shield to protect us. Our spears are short. Our knives are even shorter. They're going to kill us. It's going to be a slaughter. Of course, the scriptures doesn't say exactly like that, but that's, that's the point. We can't overcome this. They're far too greater than we are. I can't believe it. After all the miracles God has performed, all the miracles that God performed, you can't get your eyes off yourself? Are you kidding me? God gave you water from a rock? That supplied water for thousands and thousands and thousands of people from a rock? And you don't think God can overcome any obstacle before you? Are you crazy? I'll never understand it. They questioned God to the nth degree and then had the audacity to say, you know what? God just sent us out here to die in the desert. Maybe we should just select another leader and go back to Egypt. Yeah, let's go back to Egypt. It was much, much better there as slaves in Egypt. Let's go back. And it's about that time that God spoke up and says, enough. I'm done with it. Ten times this rebellious generation, if you want to put it plainly, has cursed me to my face. They have not believed in me. They have been unfaithful. They have been doubting. I have had enough. And the Lord, and then as the Lord saying these things, the Lord goes to Moses and he says this, he says, Moses, I will do away with all of these people and I will start it all over with just you. And Moses intercedes. He says, Lord, don't let that be true. Lord, please don't. Forgive your people. Otherwise, other nations are going to think that you are a very harsh guard of judgment and people will talk about you in bad ways. Don't do this, Lord. And then the Lord says this. And then the Lord replied to Moses and says, you know what? He says, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, as surely as the glory of of the Lord fills the whole earth. Not one, not one who saw what? My glory. Not one who saw my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt 
and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me these ten times. Not one of them will ever see the promised land that I promised by oath to your ancestors. Not one. Hmm. Because they have treated me with contempt. But then God reveals his heart. He says, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valley, you're going to need to turn back and go the other way. In other words, if I really wanted to destroy you, I would have just said, yeah, just turn around and go down the valley and be attacked. But the God, God says, no, there's danger if you go that way. Turn around and you need to go back this way. He protects them. He protects them. Even in his great anger, God humbled himself and protects them. Go this way. And God pronounced that all men, this is important, you got to hear this, all men 20 years old and older are going to perish in the wilderness. 40 years of wanderings are coming. All males 20 years old and older will perish because of their disobedience. Let's have verse number uh, four. And as for your children, you said, you will be taken as plunder. I will bring them in to enjoy the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in the wilderness. Your children will be the shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your body lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each day that you explore the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it's like to have me against you. That is powerful. You will know what it's going to be like to have God against you. Whew. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will surely accomplish it. In verse 36, so the men of Moses, that Moses has sent to explore out the land, who returned and made the community grumble against, against him by spreading a bad report, these men who were responsible for spreading the bad report on the land were struck down and they died of a plague before the Lord. Of the men who went to explore the land, only of all the men who went out to explore the land, only Joshua and Caleb survived. Wow. Picture number three, please. After 40 years of wandering in the desert, the Israelites finally make it back to the promised land. And in the book of Joshua, 
there's, there's, there's a sense of excitement in the scriptures after they sent the two spies out. See, the story really begins after the two spies have gone out and have come back. The story starts then in uh, chapters 3, 4, and 5 of the book of Joshua. There, there is a significance here. You see, the elders, the elders that are heads of the different tribes, if, if you listen to what they're saying, they're saying, Look at Moses, oh, excuse me, look at Joshua. Look at Joshua. Look at the ark. Look at the priest. When you see the priest grab a hold of that ark, you be ready to move. Get up, prepare yourself. We are anxious, we are excited. We are going into the promised land. Be ready when you see them go. We are going. A whole different attitude than it was 40 years previous. A whole different attitude. There was an attitude of excitement. We're going in. But see, there's also a difference. See here, see, at the Red Sea, if you recall, the seas parted in half. And if you remember, it was done by a staff that was held up over the waters. See, that was by a staff those waters departed. But see, this time it was the ark. It was the ark of the covenant that, that, that goes in. And as the priest's feet begin to touch the very ends of the water, the water heaps up. It doesn't split in two because the Jordan River flows down. It heaped up on one end. Now the ark remains in the midst, in the middle of the Jordan River. And all the people are commanded to go across. This is where it gets exciting. Picture number two. So the Israelites... They crossed over, and Joshua commanded each elder of each tribe to go where the ark was standing in the midst and to take a stone, a sizable stone, one that you would have to heave up on your shoulder to carry and bring it into the camp. They were to take their stones and lay it down at the encampment as a, as a symbol, if you will, of that particular tribe. Now, the people who carried the ark remained in the middle of the Jordan until uh, what the Lord had commanded Joshua was done, just as Moses had directed Joshua. The people hurried over. Then the Lord commanded Joshua, saying, Command the priest carrying the ark of the law to come out. In verse number five, please. And the priest came out of the came out of the river carrying the ark of the covenant. No sooner had their feet touched dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned in their place. And they ran again back at flood stage. The next verse, on the tenth day, on the tenth day of the first month, 
the people went up out of the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. We know as Messianic Jewish believers what the 10th day represents. We know what that means. See, in the, the Passover story, it was the day that you selected your lamb, the lamb or your goat. It was the, the lamb or the goat that you pinned up in your house in preparation for Passover. We know that in the uh, New Testament, we know what the 10th day means. That's the day that Yeshua, our Messiah, on a donkey, rides a donkey to Jerusalem and offers himself up as a lamb of God. He's making himself available for the slaughter on that very same day. On this day, the Lord brings them into the promised land. And Joshua said, now these stones, they camped at Gilgal. Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones that were taken from the Jordan. Let me say that again. Joshua set up the 12 stones that the leaders of Israel took out of the Jordan. Joshua set up the 12 stones that were gathered up by the elders, the leaders of Israel. Hmm. And when the people see the stack of stones, when your children see the stack of stones as a memorial, what do you tell your children? For the Lord your God dried up to Jordan before you until you have all crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when it was dried up before us until all had crossed over. He did this so that all people of earth might know. All people of the earth might know. He did this so that all the people of the earth will know. that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Hmm. One last scripture. Scripture number six. At that time the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites. Now, this is why he did so, because all those who came out of Egypt, all of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All people came out of Egypt, that came out of Egypt, were circumcised, but all the people, here we go, born in the wilderness wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men that were of military age when they left Egypt had died. And since that time they had not obeyed, for they had not obeyed the Lord, for the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised to their ancestors to give them, the land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place. And these were the ones Joshua circumcised. 
the descendants of the, of the men of rebellion, the descendants of the men of rebellion wandered in the wilderness were not circumcised. Now this is a very grievous thing in one sense because we know that the Lord said eight days after the birth you are to circumcise your sons. This is definitely a sign of the covenant between me and you. You got to do it. But wait a minute, for 40 years not one son was circumcised in the desert and the Lord never complains. Have you ever thought about why? The sign of the circumcision was to get the people into the promised land. It was the covenant promise. This is the, this is the sign of the flesh of the covenant that I'm giving you this land. And when people rebelled against that covenant, God said, that's it. That's it. Now you are not. There's no need to circumcise because I have brought you to the promised land like I promised. You were scared to go. So now you wonder. But they, Joshua, circumcised everyone that day. And then they healed. In verse 9, it says, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place is called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal in the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated Passover. I know we came a long way. Every bit of it's significant. Now I'm just going to put that picture number one back up for me. This monument casts a shadow. It has a shadow. It's a shadow and a type of what Yeshua does. Let's just take Joshua's name out of the picture for just a minute. And let's look at Yeshua. Let's look at it from Yeshua's point of view. When the people first crossed over the Jordan, the ark was in the midst of the Jordan River. What's on top of the ark? Besides the cherubim, what's on top of the ark? The mercy seat. Now you really got to picture this. You got the sinful desert over here. You got the promised land over here. The Ark of the Covenant rests exactly in between. And the mercy seat's right here. Everybody that came from the desert of sin and unfaithfulness had to go by the mercy seat to get to the promised land. <laughs> I can get happy with that one. Then all the elders, after all the people had passed over, all the elders had to go get stones. Why did they have to get stones? Those stones, I believe, 
if you look at it, represents the sin and the weight that those elders, the responsibility of the elders in the past, the weight of their sins, they had to bear the weight of that sin, if you will. They took it from where? From the mercy seat, in the area of the mercy seat. They, brought, they bore those sins with them, and then they brought it into the camp, and then they laid it in front of the camp, in front of the whole encampment. The elder drops it right there. What does Jesus do with sins? i tell you what he did. He, took, he walked over to each one of those elders in the camp and he picked up their stone. He picked up their stone and he piled them up. He piled all their stones up. And he erected a memorial there and says, this place is now called Gilgal, which means my, uh, your sins have been rolled away. My, your reproach has been rolled away. I have rolled away your sin, and this is a memorial to it. But the Lord didn't stop there. He circumcised all of those who had wandered in the desert and who were not circumcised. He circumcised them. What's the significance of this? to put them into right standing, to put them back in covenant. You are now my people. Again. Last but not least, what does he do? They have supper together. Passover. What's Passover all about? It's about acknowledging God, his power, his authority, to do all things, they sat down and had supper together. The Lord brings it all together. It clashes in the book of Joshua like no other place. It's like two gigantic waves coming together and just, boo! You're now here. You've been forgiven. You've been circumcised. And we know that Yeshua does the same thing for us. He takes our sins, the weight of our sin, he rolls it away. He puts us in right standing with the Father so that we can sup with him and him with us. The monument don't look like much, but there's one last thing we know. There's a monument in the New Testament represented by a stake. And it has the same significance to where all of our sins were nailed to a stake by a God who says he loves us so much there's no words in the human language that can compare to it. And he says, I'll take them on myself. so that you can be free, so that you can enter the promised land. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we do love you. We praise you and we thank you for all your mighty works. You're an awesome God. Forgive us, Lord, of our sins and our trespasses. Help bring us back into right standing with you. We love you. Lord, we bless your name. In Yeshua's precious name we pray.
Amen.